Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in to today's episode. This is episode 93, right? Is it 93? Uh, sounds close enough for me we'll call uh, it 93 call it 93 well this i'm your host josh shelter with my friend ryan ryan ray how's uh how's life treating you this week ryan good man good uh you know it's it's so weird because for the first what 90 episodes we recorded on fridays and so you know i kind of would think back you know coming from a trip or whatnot well now we record on mondays and so it's kind of a a different framework it's like well the last week what did happen the last week but uh, a lot of stuff and i know we've got and I'm not going this year. I've had several people ask me, but I know Nape is right around the corner. Let's see here. Yeah, the, this whoop, that's the wrong day. And they pulled up here the 11th through the 15th. So it's uh, right around the corner. But I will not be at Nape. I know several people have asked me that. But you know where we'll be, Josh? Ripping lips down here in just a few weeks. We are working out the final details of the trip. It's looking like February, what did I say? I think 22nd, I think is roughly the, the day we're looking at for our 20, first fishing trip. 21st is on a Thursday. 20, okay. 21st, yep. 21st, 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 that's that's where we're tentative looking at with Bath and Bay Rod and Gun. You can find out more about Bath and Bay Rod and Gun at bathandbayrodandgun.com. Um, we'll go down there. Uh, all you got to do is show up and you get to fish for free with Josh and myself and uh, one other listener. We're working out the details, texasoilandgaspodcast.com slash fishing. That's where you can sign up. You got to sign up there. We love the ratings and reviews. Please keep doing those. We're the, I think we're the highest rated oil and gas show that I'm aware of, Josh. And so, especially in our category. Um, so, um, textoilandgaspodcast.com slash fishing. Leave. All you got to do is fill out the form. Fill out the form and you will be entered to win. And we're hoping to do a lot of these trips this year. Uh, we got to teach Josh how to fish and how to take off his floaties. So, it's going to be an experiment. Uh, but it's something we are working on. And uh, anyway, so thanks again to Bath Bay Rod and Gun for sponsoring the show. Um, Josh, I tell you what, I'm, I'm looking at it, you know, this warm weather this weekend. I was thinking, man, it'd be nice to be out on the water. Yes, sir. You know. Yes, sir. <laughs> that's, what I'm, that's what I'm looking at. I'm hoping we don't have like a cold front come through. I'm not a, I'm not a cold fisher, you know, I don't like ice fishing and all that. I think it gets up to about 65, 70. Whew. That would be, that would be nice. That would be nice. Well, well uh, yeah, I don't. Yeah, we don't want to be out there when it's too cold. But you know, we gotta. Sometimes you gotta take one for the team, Josh. You I know. Go out there and fish while hard life. Out there working, so it's, it's a tough life. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm definitely gonna bring something to demonstrate the uh, the whole fishing situation, a GoPro or or something to get a <laughs> like a live stream of the of the, <laughs> the real situation out there. <laughs> well, yeah, we gotta. We gotta be sitting there not doing anything. Uh, well, I won't be doing something. Be kicking your butt, and I'm telling you that right now. Uh, well, we got a review come in, right? The geophysics guy, he sent us, sent us a review. Five stars. Good show. Enjoy staying up to date on the oil and gas industry in Texas while interpreting seismic data. Good range of topics discussed. Speaking of seismic data, there's an article that we have coming out, uh, I think, yeah, Sergio did this article. Trio of earthquakes hit near Eagleford town of Three Rivers. I wonder if we uh, may should reach out to this guy to maybe come on yeah. and give us a take yeah. on some on some seismic activity. If you're listening, to, uh, reach out to us, man. We might get you on the show and talk yep. about some of the seismic data because this has been in the news for for some time, and it, it may be very unrelated to where you're at. But we would, we would love to have someone, an expert in the field, come on and talk about it. 
Well, you, uh, you remember, Josh, uh, I don't remember what episode it was. A while back, we talked about, you know, when we were growing up in high school and or junior high or whatever it was, like there was four fault lines in the United States or something like that. They told us whatever it was. Yeah. And now it's like, well, there's my fault lines everywhere. So um, I think that's one of the questions we kind of left out there. And so if, if he can talk to us just about that in general, just um, has the information changed? You know, maybe the public schools failed at telling us the truth. You know, what whatever. I'm sure there's a lot of information out there that he could come and bring on the show that would be very, very uh very, very helpful. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Reach out, 318-599-9192. That is in the show notes, so you can find it there. Or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And, you know, I just realized this is a Sergio article. Sergio's got one, two, what, three articles? In, man, dude. Uh, the Houston he's, Chronicle's got to start sponsoring this show. Get that yeah, kind of publicity. Well, he, yeah, well, he's been, he's been cranking out some articles here in the last couple of weeks. Uh, he's been That's about time he did something. Yeah, you know, yeah. He I was think slacking he, there for a while. He was getting a little lazy there for a while, wasn't he? <laughs> I mean, he's ramping it up. Well, the the first one we have is actually Sergio drilling down Sinclair returns to Texas with controversial Permian Basin projects. So uh, a company in the western states uh, is exploration and production arm of Salt Lake City Refining Company. Uh, they are returning to Texas, and they are going to be starting up some projects in the Permian. So uh, if it's a company you might want to check into, but it, good news that they're they're trying to make some moves. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, as Sergio points out in this piece, that they're, um, I think they're going to drill five horizontal wells, it says, in the, within the sea limits of Big Spring. Um, and let's see here, two, the drilling pad, here, here's a quote from the article, drilling pads for the projects are located in unpopulated areas along I-20, but the laterals run under several several parts of the town. Company officials did not immediately reply for comment, but environmentalists said they opposed the projects. Sergio, first off, I gotta give you a hard time. That you can just put that in every oil and gas piece you put. Environmentalists, environmentalists said they opposed the projects. That's a that's a standard line there. Um, I'm curious, you know, where this is in relationship to the to the town. You know, because there's some parts and you're thinking like, you know, I live by Dallas Fort Worth, and as you know, Josh. There's some parts where, you know, it's thick as thieves. There's big, tall buildings, and there's houses. And there's some parts where inside the Metroplex where there's there's no one. No one lives there. Um, it's just kind of weird. And, you you know, if you were dropped off on a ship and you couldn't see the, the horizon, you would think, oh, okay, I'm out in the middle of nowhere, basically. So I'm curious to see where, where these laterals are, maybe, you know, in relationship to buildings and things like that. And, you know, who are the, the landowners for these, um, or mineral owners, rather, were these, you know, um, owned by businesses or, you know, you know, some landowner who's held on the mineral rights from 100 years ago, you know, and, and then now business has moved in. So I would like to see the map and maybe in the few, in the coming weeks or months we could see exactly where this is as it relates to um, the actual city, if you will, or inside the city limits where uh, people are living and businesses are and things like that. Mm. Well, it's definitely, uh, definitely some good points. I, I wonder, I wonder this company that's moving to Texas is showing that there are Several they're hitting Permian, Eagleford, Haynesville, and the and the Barnett. Uh, so they're spreading it out in Texas. It well, looks like. I, I think Josh actually, because uh, I was confused by that as well. I think he's got an update. I think Sinclair here. Sinclair, if you've seen it before, they've got the green gas pumps with the dinosaur on there, um, yep. green dinosaur. Anyways, but I think these are it's like the Permian Basin. There's an update on on uh, Pioneer and the Eagleford. So I think these are different companies per per shell. So it's kind of a good quick overview. It's almost like Josh Sergio took the Texas Roundup idea and put it into a piece. Put, just, put it, you know, yeah. just, I mean, I'm just, I'm not saying that's what he did, but I'm, you know, I'm just saying it's what it looks like from an yeah. outsider's perspective. Well, an un, a, a very unbiased opinion might think that. Well, you got to copy the best. So, uh, 
<laughs> uh, we got a uh, good friend, David Blackman, uh, the oil and gas situation, seven key things to know about oil and gasoline. Uh, so he put out this article on January the 30th, which would have been uh, late last week. So you know, the way oil and gas is, sometimes that, that may date you a little bit. But the basic overview, taking a look at gas, gas prices, uh, and why they are fluctuating you know, why is these gas prices fluctuating so much? I know I went to get gas and they were like 45 cent difference within three or four days at one point. Uh, the, the gas prices are, are all over the place. So he talks a little bit about why that is. Uh, and he goes over the global commodity that oil has become and how there are so many different factors that are affecting the, the gas prices. Is this always been the case, Ryan, or is this something that is a, a more recent phenomenon for prices to fluctuate so quickly? Yeah, I think actually, Josh, and I don't know if David addressed this directly to the piece, but I think actually prices, you know, if you look at them, you might see, like you say, a, a swing here or there. But I think sometimes we kind of get short-sighted. If you go back, I always use, use this analogy. When I was in high school, uh, early 2000s, I remember the headline read something to the effect of... Um, you know, oil prices surge on fear of supply disruption in somewhere in the Middle East, something along, along those lines. Iraq right, war, yeah. And so, you know, that was based upon fear, fear that the supply might um, be be tightened up because of a war or a pipeline bust or, or you know, uh, oil fields raided in the Middle East. We don't really have that anymore. And we've looked over the last few years, if you look at some of the global conflicts that's gone on, you've seen that the price, sometimes it will react a little bit, but it doesn't react nearly as strongly as it used to. So you are going to still see swings because obviously it is tied, tied to the price of crude oil. But I think really, if you look back to uh, just, in, just in this this uh, last you know 20 years, if you will, the price has really stabilized out of the last downturn um, because we have the ability to keep our supply pretty full and pretty plentiful. Now, in the future, obviously, that could change. But right now, um, I think it's actually pretty stable. You will see those swings. Um, one thing we had on Energy Week podcast, and you guys can go back and find it if you want to, we had on the person from Gas Buddy, um, the Gas Buddy app, and he talked about why um, prices swing and how they work in big cities and how it's a little bit different than big cities and little cities. And so, probably about 10 episodes ago, we had on that guy from Gas Buddy. But that was kind of interesting. Um Two things I found of note, Josh, and we'll talk about one of them later, is, um, you know, he says, why are we exporting so much of our own crude oil? And this is a very important point that a lot of people sometimes they don't think about or, um, you know, as we always say, the, the oil and gas industry is so, hard, uh, so, so large, it's kind of hard to track everything. Um, but we don't have the refining capacity to refine all of this stuff here, so we have to ship around globally. And the question is, at this point, is are we kind of saturating that, that global market? Can we continue to export at the rates that we have? Some people don't think we do. Some people think we can. You know, I don't know. It depends on who you ask and what day it is on what that, you know, how that works itself out. Um, and then the other thing he says is, will the U.S. ever become fully energy self-sufficient where crude oil is concerned? He says probably not. Now, um, I, I don't think that's ever going to be the case. Unless, and if we've got a refining expert to come on and help with this, we'd love to hear from you. But as I understand it, even if you expand the refining capacity, you still need the heavier crudes to blend with our light speed crudes. So we don't have a lot of that here in the States, and so you've got to blend it. So you'd always have to import some form of heavy crude to blend with the light crude. And so if you're talking about being self-sufficient, you would, if you need to import the crude oil um, from somewhere else to blend with your crude oil, then... 
you you can never be self sufficient. If does that make sense? So I don't I don't think you know, he says probably not at least not any time in the several coming decades. And I would say probably not unless the refining technology and, and I'm not a refining guy, so I could be way off here. But my understanding is the refining as it stands right now, steel is going to be dependent on blending with heavier crudes, and there's no end inside of that. Again, if you're a refining guy, you say, hey, Ryan, you're an idiot. Love to have you on the show to hear about that, but that's my understanding. So um, those last two points I thought were interesting and definitely worth uh, to think about. That's a good segue, Ryan, into the ExxonMobil that we're going to announce for that light, sweet crude being forcing us to export uh, the oil to refineries that can that can handle it. Uh, this could be a great opportunity. So we're we're going to get to that here here shortly. But uh, make sure we we do stop to discuss that a bit. Uh, Michigan utility companies ask customers to turn down heat in minus twelve degree cold after fire at gas plant. I saw this article and I thought well, this is cool. And there, this is this is opening up a couple of different thought processes for me. Uh, so, Ryan, your thoughts first, and I want to give you kind of some of the things that I thought about just to see how uh, the media or how the oil and gas companies or the environmentalist companies are going to handle this situation because it seems to be a pretty tricky one for the environmentalist, uh, in my opinion, at least from where I'm standing. Yeah, you know, and I actually had someone um, who lives up there uh, send me a message about coming on one of the shows and talking about this, so we might get him on to talk about um at least living up there and, you know, going through this. But, you know, this is the thing that, you know, when we talk about the importance of energy and the importance of oil and gas, and we always kind of make that, that, that remark, give me a better solution. It's because we, we really take human life very serious. That's something very important. Um, it's not something very trivial. And, you know, if you don't, any of my policies on uh, war or, you know, uh, justice, it's always about protecting human life. Um, and, and, and this energy policy needs to be surrounded around that. And so, you know, you sit around and you say, well, hey, we want to look at something. And, and it's not about being anti-wind. It's not about being anti-solar or anti-anything. Uh, nuclear energy is a very viable and great solution, and that's why I'm very pro-nuclear. Um, but when you get to these these scenarios, Josh, you know, it, 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 it's scary. I talked to someone, had lunch with someone last week uh, who lived up in Iowa, and I said, you know, what, what's it like? You know, if you, because my understanding is, I've never been this kind of cold. But my understanding is, if you get caught outside in this, like you put your clothes on, you walk out to your garage, you hit the garage door button, you back out, and you go 20 minutes uh, away from the house, you get out of the house, and let's say you're walking across the field to go let a cow out of pasture, whatever it is you do with that kind of weather, and you walk about halfway across the pasture, 10, 15 minutes, and you realize at that point that it, that that you're that you don't have enough clothing on it can be very it can be deadly or very dangerous and she said yeah she goes you know once five to ten minutes exposure um if you realize that you're you're caught essentially out there and you can't get the heat you're you're in very very serious trouble so um it, down here in the south we don't think about about you know the cold being a killer but it's very very serious and um so yeah so that's kind of my thoughts on it josh what you got well, you know, so just uh, for a little reference, uh, my mom actually works uh, and knows people up there, and they said that they had shut down. So if someone got in a wreck, there would be people on the street. They weren't sending police officers out there because the police officers were getting frostbite after X amount of minutes being exposed mm-hmm. to the cold, and then they were having to go to the hospital and handle things that way. So the situation was pretty pretty severe. I mean, the cold is something, and I think— um first thought is 
that's the one of the reasons that we love oil and gas around here is because cold weather um, is is very well uh, mitigated by a heater, natural gas, and and those those things. So what the city of Minnesota or the state of Minnesota needs is a more robust pipeline system, uh, supply of natural gas in order to handle situations like this. So uh, I saw a, a post about global warming being the cause of this really cold weather. Uh, I think Trump put out a tweet earlier that said, where is global warming? We need you. It was a, it was a funny tweet. And then some people that were pro-global warming came back and said, well, uh, global warming is actually the cause of these of this weather. So it seems to me, Ryan, that if global warming is causing that and it's getting worse and worse, that we're going to need a lot more natural gas infrastructure in Minnesota yeah. and a lot more natural gas in order to save human life there if this is going to get worse and worse. So it or seems nuclear. To, or you nuclear. Know, it's not, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we're not, just so we're clear, we're, we are pro-energy, whatever energy works. And I think what you're getting to is that there's not enough energy that's working up there right now. And so... Yeah. Um, when you look at it, say, well, well, a nuclear power plant up there, or, or five, or however, I'm not a nuclear expert, however, you, you know, whatever it takes to sustain the grid is what we need to do. Yeah, and and when you look at it that way, uh, the the issue of global warming is causing danger for human life. So the the way the environmentalists tend to go is, since global warming is such a big issue, we need to spend or have less natural gas and less energy available to the people of Minnesota which is going to result in more people losing their life. And that's why you mentioned we value human life. Well, if global warming is a threat, it's threatening human life. What is the best solution to protect that life? You mentioned nuclear. Natural gas has been the most effective things there to date. But there may better there may very well be better options available that may need to be looked at. But at the at the basic point, more energy is needed, not less. That's the that's the main that's the main point and uh, and and I don't think they were really thinking about it in terms of human life with the articles that I saw coming out. So I think it puts them in a difficult position, Ryan. That they 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 don't realize that they're actually going to be supporting more energy with with what's happening up there right now. Yeah, and the final thing I'll say is that Josh is that if you say hey, you know, fossil fuels are killing the world, this that and the other, we're, you know, we, we've got to stop global warming. Um, then you need to be a nuclear advocate um, or a hydro advocate or something other than wind and solar advocate. And that's usually the problem that we see is that it's, you know, it, we're, we're not, you know, natural gas pipelines that help with heating, great. Uh, if nuclear is better, great. It's I'm very, very agnostic on um, which source we use as long as it's the right source. And I think that's when you see these things happen, that's what's so frustrating is it's like, well, you know, well, what happened with the wind and solar? Why don't we have enough natural gas? And there's a lot of there's a lot of retroactively blaming things. And sometimes, mm-hmm. Josh, things happen. You know, sometimes we go on here to record this podcast, and we do our best, and you know, Nate messes up the edit, and he's like, "Come <laughs> on, man!" You know, so he has to retake something. I mean, it's Nate's fault, and you know, Nate's a human guy, and he he did the best, but he's Nate, right? You got to cut him a little slack. Got to cut him a little slack. Well, Ryan, we have quite a quite a roundup today for our Texas Roundup portion of the show. We cover jobs, mergers, acquisitions, things we see, job, uh, different job opportunities, uh, companies making moves, requiring others. The first one is Blackstone to take controlling state and tall grass energy for $3.3 billion. Been doing a little bit of research into Blackstone and uh, definitely a company that's trying to make some moves. They 
I think uh, Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund GIC is um, funding. A minority investor, yeah. Yeah, minority investor in the deal, so there's some funding there. And uh, so Blackstone's planned $40 billion infrastructure fund, which Saudi Arabia's main sovereign wealth fund agreed last year to contribute up to $20 billion. So Blackstone is a big company with very ambitious goals for the next five years. They are taking control or is taking a stake in Tallgrass Energy, so something to keep an eye on. I mentioned earlier Sergio's article about the uh, trio of earthquakes that hit near Eagleford Town of Three Rivers. So just like to keep up with that. I don't know that there was any infrastructure damage significantly, but uh, this has been in the news a little bit about how much the oil and gas drilling and fracking is maybe contributing to some of the seismic activity. Uh, so that's something to keep an eye on because if they uh, if they identify a causal relationship there that's pretty strong, it could be uh, tumultuous to say the least. Ryan Chevron is buying a Texas refinery from Brazil's Petrobras. That's from uh, from Reuters. So Chevron has uh, has been making some moves. That yeah, and, and re- real quick, that follows along with the line about Exxon. It says in the in the press release here that Chevron to process more domestic light crude. Um, so you know this is part of this thing where we're going to see U.S. companies um, or companies that want to work in the U.S. produce oil in the U.S. Uh, refine oil in the U.S. Um, they're going to need more refining capacity. So it goes hand in hand with that Exxon story. Yeah, the Exxon and this one. Uh, so the Exxon, uh, while we speak of it, Exxon Mobil's uh, they okay a project to nearly double size of a Texas refinery. So this refinery in Beaumont, Texas, could make it the largest in the U.S. And if you remember back what we said just a few minutes ago, the, the Texas, I mean, the you know, oil in Texas, but the U.S. is producing a huge amount of oil. A lot of it is sweet crudes. We're exporting it because we don't have refineries to handle it. Well, Chevron and Exxon are both uh, increasing or buying new refineries that will have the capacity to handle these lighter, sweeter crudes. And I think I think it's a fantastic move. I think they're both going to... Um, enjoy a, a lot of success from that because the ability to get the oil locally rather than exporting it is going to save on costs and I think that the, the companies will certainly be uh, benefit from the decision and, we, and hey Josh one, 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 one quick story because I know we got to wrap up here we get uh, uh, Jose Ortega on but real quick just on over the weekend we had something happen so Sergio put out a story um, it says Chesapeake completed its 3.98 billion uh, billion with a B deal to buy Wild Horse and is now poised to become the second largest oil company in the for shale. And so I, I, I shared that post on LinkedIn and said Chesapeake is like a villain in a movie. Just when you think they're dead, here they come again. And, and that's and, and and obviously I shared that because it seems like you know one week it's Chesapeake's dead, the next week here they come, you know they're buying something, the next week they're too much debt, the next week they're buying something, and you know or month or whatever it is, and. I, you know, we had someone come on the post and just absolutely just go after, I guess, Sergio or me. I don't know if he understood the difference between me actually sharing a post and Sergio actually writing the post. But I, I, I thought, you know, listen, I'm not saying Sergio's right. I'm not saying Sergio's wrong. I just think it's funny that the headlines come, you know, Sir, uh, Chesapeake's dead. Uh, they're going to go bankrupt to here they come with a big acquisition or um, you know, they got to sell their assets, and, and here they come to the acquisition. And, and the only thing I would say is that just, just for folks in the oil and gas industry, just remember, there's no reason to act like that. And so anyway, I said something to the guy, and he deleted it. I think he even unfriended me on LinkedIn or whatever you do. But, 
you know, we, we try to keep it pretty light here, Josh. We try to keep it pretty pretty friendly, friendly, especially for those in the oil and gas industry. And I just I don't understand that mentality. So um, we love the conversation on LinkedIn. We you know, and I think we've said multiple times that if you disagree with us, guess what, Josh? What will we do? We'll have you on the show to come talk about it. But there's no reason to go and be a clown on LinkedIn. So. I just thought that, you know, it's like, oh, man, the guy deleted it now, thankfully. But um, but just keep that in mind, folks. That, you know, hey, we're all just trying to make a living here and learn it. There's no reason to go after each other. Um, you see a lot of that now on social media, Josh, and it's just kind of depressing, especially when we're all, you know, in oil and gas, we're kind of against the, you know, certain aspects of society naturally by what we do. It feels like we need to kind of work together instead of um, working against each other. And if Sergio's wrong about the wild horse, um, uh, deal and all that, then, then guess what? It's, it's, it, okay. It's not the end of the world. So is this something that came up over the weekend? Then the guy deleted it. And I just, I don't know. It just kind of was like, come on, man, here we are, you know, just, just trying to share the news and, and, uh, someone's gonna get their panties on a ruffle. So, um, I don't know. And then they deleted it. Then they deleted it. You know, I was like, well, I mean, come on. You come out here calling everybody out, and then you go delete it. You know? So, anyways, I just... Folks, 318-599-9192. You can find us on LinkedIn. Connect with the show. We're always welcome. Which reminds me, before we get Jose on, we have a debate on eminent domain, Josh. I know you know about this. We have a debate coming up here pretty soon. I think it's in two or three weeks. We're going to have on someone representing a landowner's perspective and someone representing an oil and gas perspective. And so we'll have the details of that coming up. Um, hopefully by the next episode, but that's exciting to talk about, um, two different ideas on why, um, you know, eminent domain may be good and maybe bad. And, you know, and so it's going to be more of a, um, a discussion type forum. It's not like a formal debate, but, uh, more of me and Josh kind of moderating and asking questions and letting them respond. And we'll keep it very friendly on here. Like we always do. So. Awesome. Yeah. I'm excited about that, man. I have actually been uh, traveling around Texas for the last week or so, and we've had discussions with uh, several people about eminent domain. I've been uh, acquiring information here and there, uh, but I had opportunity just getting different perspectives from you know, different land guys and other project managers about how they've handled it. So, uh, hopefully, when they get the, when they come on the show, I won't be uh, too much of an idiot, and we'll have something co- to contribute, and uh, maybe maybe we could. Uh, Maybe we can go into the legislative business, Ryan. There we go. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm joking. I'm kidding. We wouldn't last a minute. No. Uh, okay, we have a special guest, Jose Ortega. He's the vice president of Terra Midstream uh, on the show today to talk about some uh, issues of, about water and the growing demand for water in the Permian. Jose, good to have you back on the show, bud. Great, guys. Thank you for having me. I, I appreciate you making time and uh, scheduling scheduling me in for a call for a second time yeah, yeah i was gonna say it's been a while since we talked to you but um thanks to nate we get to talk to you twice in two days so we can all give nate a attaboy for um you know we gotta blame him you gotta blame somebody right jose yeah no it's okay i think it's worth mentioning um yesterday we we had this recording and for whatever reason we, we weren't able to record it but i actually it was it was early in the morning and i wasn't up to speed and i I just got off a flight and landed in Houston, and I had like a 30-minute siesta, so I'm I'm sharp and ready to go. So it worked out <laughs> fine. <laughs> well, so don't don't give Nate a pass, okay? Don't 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 let um don't let him you know influence what's going on here. But it's been a while since we had you on last October. Let's just kind of recap what's been going on in the water space since then. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, last time we spoke, I think that we were in a position where the water midstream space wasn't valued um, 
as it is now, you know, um, I've been fortunate to be invited to be on the panel of the Permian Basin Water and Energy Conference uh, the third week of February. And before then, you know, we had around 300 participants and now we're expecting, you know, close to twice that. On top of that, you're seeing articles like um, the recent uh, Bloomberg uh, article that came out valuating the, the, the water space in the next five years in the Permian to be $22 billion. And I think that's, that's quite accurate. Um, as you know, this, this uh, last year, at the end of the year, we had somewhere in between 4,600 and 5,000 ducks, just wells that were drilled and not completed that were re- ready for, uh, for activity and completions and investment. So I think now that the, you know, evidently the oil and gas price, the commodities is something that no one can really predict, you know, I think there's a saying there that the best prediction is today's price. But what we're seeing now is uh, uh, lots of interest from investors, lots of interest from uh, oil and gas companies and our clients trying to be proactive, um, as well as uh, more and more players in the industry. Um, chemical companies starting to offer recycling treatments, um, com- uh, service of completions, activity or the completions pillar of the oil and gas business companies that didn't offer, you know, logistics and recycling, you're starting to see a little bit more of that diversity in the services to accommodate to the problem. You know, we, we covered a story um, a few weeks ago on the show, Jose, and it was an acquisition, I believe Josh of some, uh, what, $32 billion or something like that. Someone bought some property and was looking to drill. And we, we'd commented that, you know, uh, you know, one to two, three years ago, you wouldn't even see headlines like this in the water space. As we move forward um, with drilling programs increasing, longer horizontal wells, water is going to be a key entity. And so, it, it we we we're expecting, and uh, it sounds like you're you're also along with this to see more headlines of these massive water deals being done six months, twelve months, eighteen months down the road. Absolutely, and it's already been happening. Um, what I see is specifically with the news and a lot of the, 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 the analysts in regards to what to expect, you know, whether it's the sand business, uh, the regional sand business that was making headlines, you know, two to three, two to three years ago, uh, which is still is a very key part. Um, I think what's going on now is, is that unfortunately the oil and gas business has been very reactive. You know, we, we, as a general space, we tend to address problems as they come, not in a proactive manner. And, you know, I think I've even been um, guilty of that early in my career to do so. But what's, what's going on with the water pieces, as you know, for every four barrels, uh, for every one barrel of oil, you'll have anywhere from four barrels of water produced is up to 12, just depending on the, on the area that you're in. And if you think of, you know, 5,000 wells and, and a good well, you know, being in the early thousands of barrels per day, you know, or late or top hundreds per day, you know, you're looking at, you know, anywhere from, you know, just giving some hypothetical numbers, uh, you know, 4,000 up to 30,000 barrels of water per well, you know, and if you, if you add that to the existing infrastructure and to the, the, the fracking that's going to be happening in the new two to three, in, in the next two to three we, uh, years, you know, evidently we, 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 we watched as, Pioneer uh, sold all of their fracking assets and their pumping assets to ProPetro in a hybrid deal, you know, you know, with cash and as well as um, uh, ProPetro giving up some of their stock in that deal and also having, you know, Pioneer as a preferred client. 
you know, you see, you're starting to see a lot of these hybrid fields to pre- preparing for the completions activity, as well as lots of attention into the infrastructure that's going to be necessary to deal with this copious amount of water that's going to be on the surface. So it'll be very interesting to see how each operator in each of their areas deal with it. Um, on top of how uh, investors start to, you know, look at this problem and this opportunity and try to evaluate what's going to be the most feasible and the most lucrative solution to the problem. Right. So I, I tend to think that disposal um, is one solution, but it's not the most sustainable nor the most reliable just because of the seismic activity that you see, particularly in, in Pecos, you know, Pecos County, you know, we've had, I believe the numbers, uh, roughly, you know, in the last five years, you had maybe four seismic events early on in those five years. And then now you're seeing about 64 seismic events. You know, evidently uh, litigation is going to have to do uh, litigation. You'll see some issues with that and as well as policy um, with what the state of Texas is going to decide on how many permits. And then now you're, you're seeing a big delay in that, you know, permits are, are being uh, more difficult to have approved um, it's costing, you know, operators and, and service providers X, you know, you know, you're looking, you know, anywhere from, uh, 200 to $600,000 for a per- approved permit, just because of how difficult that may be. So it's starting to become quite an interesting, a dynamic in terms of what to do with the produced water. And I, I've been fortunate enough to be involved in, in the water business long enough to begin to to really evaluate different technologies and, and different solutions and as well as working with, you know, very intelligent and very proactive clients that, you know, are, are eager and have enthusiasm about solving this problem. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens uh, in the next um, two to five years, uh, specifically with the water problem and how those $22 billion in potential market of value is going to be split up and dealt with. Yeah. So one of the things we, we talked about, uh, the other day we were talking just on the phone, me and you were, and you were talking about regulations that you're seeing at the county level. Can you? I know, I know you can't go through all the counties in the state of Texas and talk about water regulations, but can you talk about the discussion that's being had at the county level um, on how to deal with this water issue? Because we, we we've talked um, about you know some, the local issue and the landowners and the local companies um, and, and local landowners, you know, and, and some of their fears. So what what is the discussion like when you get to the county level about how they're going to handle these water issues as far as regulation or um, you know I don't know if they're doing fines or fees or tariffs or, or whatever. What are the discussions and what is the trend to look for there? That that's a great question. Um, I think that if you look at each area you know, based off of, uh, you know, you have Texas and New Mexico. So you have two different, completely different uh, um, lawmakers or, or systems in regards to, you know, you, you make the argument, the easiest bucket is to put them, oh, you have X Democratic and Y Republican, right? But I think what happens is more, more than, more, uh, not just looking at, you know, what political party you affiliate with, it's about, you know, environmental consciousness, right? So, that environmental consciousness then leads to how likely policies will be ex- executed in New Mexico. You know, I think it was WPX today put something on LinkedIn talking about how, you know, there's, there's some certain uh, bills trying to be passed to, you know, stop fracking in the next, uh, in New Mexico for the next four years, you know? So these are things that evidently don't make sense for the economy in, in New Mexico, because as you know, with the federal, the BLM land, 
you know, most of the, the lucrative acreage being on, on federal land, you know, having an energy um, economy in southeast New Mexico is very good for um, New Mexicans. You know, you have lots of investments. Um, it's important to be environmentally conscious, but not to the point to where you actually res- restrict all EMP activity. So there's that dynamic in New Mexico where water rights and water permits and uh, actual rights associated to each well and, and to each acreage, you know, those are hard to come by and, and that's a whole different animal versus, you know, Reeves County where you have uh, Texas, you know, if you have the surface, you have rights to the water. But what you're actually seeing now in Texas is a lot of those water boards um, and as well as the uh, officials at the county level are starting to limit the amount of water that you can produce per acre um, in regards to fresh water. So one, one, one day you will have a pit that you know has half a million barrels of water being sourced by that um, surface owner from a, from a, from a formation that can actually sustain production, you know, a good formation that's ha- having the level monitored, but let's say that they only own 40 acres. Well now, since there's, there's, there, there's a move to limit the amount of water per acre that, that asset went from, you know, having an X amount of value because of its ability to provide water, uh, to a 50,000 to a 500,000 barrel pond, um, will drop because now they're limited to what they produce. Right. So, you know, large acreage owners um, having the ability to move that water effectively, safely, and reliably, um, having good relationships with the operator because both landowners and operators are guilty to, to having you know you know bad business practice and resent the resentment there based off of you know 50 years of dealings with families. Um, it, 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 I think that the solution to all this, whether it's uh, capacity, produce water. Um, you know, infrastructure limitation is going to be collaboration. You're going to start seeing more collaboration between the parties who in the past were very, very aggressive competitors. One quick follow-up there. You mentioned freshwater's limitations. What about brackish water? Are you seeing any limitations in that area? I think quite the opposite. Um, you, you're identifying, uh, you know, you, you know not, not too long ago, um, a good friend of mine who's actually a very experienced geologist um, out of Staten, Texas, and I think most people in the water business, if, if you know of a good geologist out of Staten, you know who he is. Um, he, he's actually done a great job in actually pushing for more use of brackish water. And if you think about brackish water, they, they, they act very much like shell, shelling gas wells. You know, you can only produce X amount of barrels, uh, a high volume at the beginning of its lifetime, and a, a very a not a not so abundant or um, reliable source, you know, as you produce from it. But that, that's again, those are sources that are below the water table um, in most cases. Uh, that do require, you know, the state requires you to isolate the freshwater source that may be providing municipalities, you know, just like you would in any 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 oil and gas well. Um, but no, I think what, uh, what what I'm getting to here is is that brackish water is a great solution for counties that have infrastructure nearby in regards to municipalities because now you're limiting uh, the, the brackish water gives you the ability to find a source for frack water, but not consume the fresh water needs of you know of a a, near, a nearby community. So you have seen an increase in brackish water sources. Um, because that water 
quality is starting to be accepted more and more by oil and gas engineers. However, um, because they're, they're, you know, four to five times more expensive than a, a low, a shallower freshwater well, um, they're less likely to be the first option at times just because they're all, they're, they're more expensive and, and they, they don't yield the same amount of volume. But again, uh, being, uh, quite aware of the environmental impact and the water scarcity in the area, it's, it's a very important decision. And I think that in respect to the landowners and, um, and also to be compliant with the state, it's extremely important to take all of those uh, factors into consideration. Well, Jose, uh, there's been news uh, concerning eminent domain that's been circulating, and we know water, uh, the company, water companies are beginning to act more like oil and gas companies uh, with the, uh, the, the size of the jobs, pipelines, and things they're putting in. Um, being a common carrier, most of these oil and gas companies are, makes it easier for them to go in and acquire right-of-ways. Um, what, what are the challenges uh, from the land perspective that, uh, that water companies are facing in terms of um, acquiring land and getting right-of-way? Um, I know you mentioned the difference between New Mexico and Texas and the BLM. Um, what are the challenges that are facing water companies? Um, the fact that most of them are not I don't know if any of them are common carriers. Uh, how are, how are y'all navigating or how are they navigating uh, those difficulties? So that, that's a, a very uh, interesting question. And it's actually something that, you know, we deal with uh, on a day by day basis. So, you know, with intimate donate domain and with oil and gas operators having access to their own surface, evidently them having the option, you know, our clients having the options to develop their own infrastructure uh, be in charge of the right of ways, as well as have a decision uh, in terms of how they're going to develop their own water management program, you know, deciding to act on that. Um, the, the main challenge that's associated with that, both from a service pers- a service provider and an, opera- uh, uh, an oil and gas operator, um, really comes down to uh, capital, right? Because if you, if you're an oil and gas operator and you understand that, you know, you're going to need the water and you can develop your own um, uh, recycling facility and your own network, you know, evidently it's going to take capital to have those SWD wells. It's going to take capital to put the pipeline in. It's going to take capital to build those pits. And you're going to have to have the right experienced personnel on staff to ensure that that's done both uh, in, re- uh, in, in um, compliancy as well as effectively, which serves the needs of the operator and done quickly. So where, where you see oil and gas operators that have a legacy acreage, it makes sense to have permanent infrastructure, but you know, the major, there's so many small operators out there that don't have surface infrastructure and have their, their, their surface, their, their leases and their surface isolated where they, ha- they need to collaborate with service providers. So, to, to, to give you my opinion, I think that um, service industry, you know, um, including Terra and, and, and Terra's competitors, you know, the, the people managing those companies, this has been their bread and, brother, bread and butter for so many years. So a lot of the headaches and a lot of those um, acquired skills, um, that's already been done. So I think that with the demand of fracking and the demand of the water and the need to find a use for the disposal, it's just inevitable 
um, because um, some of the small operators that have paid, you know, for expensive leases don't want to spend the capital to manage their infrastructure or to build the infrastructure. So there's lots of different factors that go into play, but the bottom line, I think that would just make an operator not uh, want to collaborate with the service company is capital. Okay. Well, Jose, we um, obviously had you on cause you're uh, you know, kind of an expert in this field, but we know that not only are you talking here, you have some presentations that you'll be doing soon. So Give the listeners, uh, obviously, about your company, anything that you want to plug and promote there, but also um, where they can find you the next coming weeks or months doing presentations, talking about these various topics. Sure, absolutely. Um, first, thanks thanks for uh, allowing me to ramble. Um, I tend to talk too much uh, and all the time. <laughs> so thanks for letting me to do that on the show. But I think that um, it's important just to mention that, you know, Terra Oilfield Services, you know, it's been around since uh, 2007. Um, you know, we are very focused on solving all problems that are water. You know, our Terra OFS, you know, Jason Harris, he's the vice president of the recycling and treatment team, which has been doing that, you know, for decades now. Um, very flexible, very, very sharp guy. Um, you know, Stan, the um, president of the company, he's been transferring water and managing logistics for a long time. And um, I'm, I've been helping him on uh, negotiating, you know, service agreements and, and just dealing specifically on the, on the assets. Uh, um, and uh, I'll also like to mention that, you know, we we have great partners, you know, with uh, Terra um, being majorly owned by the OFS fund, um, you know, having a, a strategic capital provider um, is, is very important. So that allows us to adapt to our clients' needs and to solve all of these problems. So, you know, we're very fortunate to have a very diverse um uh, team and as well as a great partner to execute um, all of these solutions that we have for the water business. Um, so that's the Terra, Terra and Terra midstream part of the question you asked. Um, on top of that, I'm actually going to be at the Produce Water uh, seminar tomorrow and uh, Thursday in uh, Sugarland. I'm super excited to see um, all the uh, my other fellow water professionals in the energy business there. Um, next week, um, SPE will be hosting um, a water forum in Midland. And um, more importantly, I'm super excited about the Permian Basin Water and Energy Conference, which is a very, is a second annual uh, Permian Basin Water and Energy Conference that's going to be held at the Horseshoe Arena. Um, you know, last year we actually had some people from China, some people from Saudi. Um, it's quite interesting just how big water has been a topic of the United States energy spectrum. So uh, I look forward to being uh, on the panel there and very humbled to have been asked to do so. Um, and also for those people that are interested in entrepreneurship, um, SPE is going to be hosting the Innovation and Entrepreneurship Symposium um, in Houston uh, at the end of the month, which I believe is the 27th, um, uh, the last uh, Wednesday and Thursday of the month. So um, yeah, it's a busy week, a uh, busy month for, um, you know, events and water and also entrepreneurship that I'm very passionate about. And I look forward to seeing you there and feel free to um, call me or uh, email me or uh, run into me at any of those events. And thanks again, guys, for making time uh, to speak to me today. Absolutely. And we'll be sure to link to as much as we can. And then we'll also link to your LinkedIn profile where folks can find and connect you. Jose is one of the good guys in the business. It's always great to get you back on and 
despite Nate trying to keep you from being on the show, we persevered and got you back on, Jose. So we we appreciate that. No, absolutely. I appreciate your guys, and uh, I, I look forward to the, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I look forward to hearing the the next shows uh, that you guys um, are putting up. And I think um, I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing. And I congratulate both of y'all, and I look forward to uh, talking water again in the near future. And Ryan, I think with that, I think that uh, that wraps it up, man. Uh, did we have do we have anything drilling uh, drilling info? We have the rig count is at. Let me see, 1,076, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, 1,076 for the rig count, and, uh, and I think that's Texas it, Texas com slash fishing. Go ahead and sign up. We will be announcing that hopefully in the next week or two. It's going to be late February, early March. We're trying to finalize all the stuff with Baffin Bay, Rod and Gun. You can find a link to them in the show notes as well. And, hey, you know, Josh... If we're going to throw your boy Nate a bone since you said don't bone, if you think Nate's been doing a good job editing the podcast, producing the podcast, getting on quality guests in the podcast, then leave us a five star review in iTunes and talk about how great Ryan and Josh are doing because that lets Nate know that he's doing his job. See, Nate's the kind of guy when, when we get the praise, it's real, he know he knows he doesn't need the praise. So just heap the praise on Josh and myself and Nate will vicariously take that as a compliment. I think that's the best way to handle it, right? That sounds fantastic. <laughs> <Dang>. <laughs> okay. The listeners, thank you so much. And until next time, keep clapping. <laughs>